MSW Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. The Washington Post's David Ignatius has long been one of our leading writers on the intersection of intelligence operations and foreign policy, not just as a columnist, but as a writer of compelling espionage fiction. Some say he's too close to the CIA, reliably channeling the views of its old boys network to his millions of devoted readers. Whatever the degree of truth to that, his network of intelligence sources developed over the decades along with his tours as a foreign correspondent in the Middle East and elsewhere, first for the Wall Street Journal and then the Washington Post, has deeply informed his spy fiction, particularly in such highly acclaimed novels as Agents of Innocence, Body of Lies, The Director, The Quantum Spy, and a handful of others. This month, Ignatius rolled out yet another spy thriller, not for bookstores, but in the pages of the Washington Post. Harkening back, he said, to the days when newspapers regularly published the Roman Aclaise of Charles Dickens and other novelists, stories based on thinly disguised personages and events. In this instance, Ignatius weaves a beguiling tale based on the spy wars between the CIA and China's MSS Civilian Espionage Agency. Triggered by the devastating loss of CIA spies in China, it's called the Tao of Deception. David Ignatius, welcome to Spy Talk. Why did you choose to write and why did the Washington Post choose to publish a fictional series on the battle between the CIA and Chinese intelligence rather than a series of columns? Was it because you could accomplish something in fiction that you couldn't in journalism? And why not turn this into a novel rather than a, a very unusual series in the Washington Post? So the first answer is that I would like to turn it into a novel, maybe twice as long as the roughly 25,000 word uh, four-part version, The Tao of Deception that ran in the Post. So why do we do it um, in that form? And the simple answer is that my editor, David Shipley, who's new in this job, replaced the wonderful, beloved Fred Hyatt, who'd been our editor for years, came to me early on and said, you're a columnist, you're a spy novelist, why don't you write a spy novel for the Post? I had never considered that. It just never occurred to me. Hmm. So I, I said, yeah, okay, that's a pretty cool idea. He, he said, well, why don't we do make it a summer serial? The idea was, once upon a time, magazines at least used to serialize fiction a lot. That's how people read Charles Dickens. That's how, how people read some of Steinbeck and other writers. They, they were serialized in, in the magazines of the day, but nobody's done it in journalism recently. So I, I then thought, what's a story that I know about that could be fictionalized, could be embroidered, that has a nut of just absolutely fascinating uh, tradecraft, uh, uh, mysterious, uh, shattering consequences. And the one that that's always stuck in my mind, Jeff, is the story of how the CIA's network in China got rolled up about just over a decade ago, starting in 2010, 
2012 is something that you and I and people who follow intelligence have known about. I've written columns about it in the past, but but I've never really delved into it, and I've never seen anybody else delve into it. Well, one of the reasons is because it's so hard to prove. Uh, as you know, um, lots of stuff happens in intelligence. We learn about it from our conversations with formers, as we call them, the former CIA people who are around Washington. And they tell us stuff. We know it's true, but you, we can't use normal journalistic techniques to prove it. Ah, well, that's why we should write a spy novel about it. <laughs> Because you can fuzz all the things that are really sensitive. You can make up all the things nobody knows. You can imagine what the other side was doing when you don't actually and will never actually know. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, think back to the Corée and, and uh, Tinker Taylor. I mean, those books were, were in a sense playing off of the Philby Cambridge Five story that has haunted the British. It was a way for Le Corée to write about it, write about uh, SIS without doing it explicitly, invented a new name for it. But, you know, in a sense, he was doing doing something similar. Uh, I had a lot of fun with this, not least because I think the Chinese intelligence service is basically unexplored territory. We know everything about, about Russian intelligence, uh, thanks to Le Carre. Carla is a living, vivid presence for us. We know nothing about the MSS. We, we don't know where they work. We don't know what they, how they operate. So th that also was, was fun to kind of plow some ground that hasn't been explored much by spy novels. For people who, who don't follow this as closely as you and I do, um, let's just quickly re uh, recap what happened. Uh, the CIA's by reporting, we know that the CIA's operations in China were totally wiped out. Maybe not totally, but they were devastated by Chinese counterintelligence. Pretty close to totally. Totally wiped out. And um, it's taken a long time for the CIA to get back on its feet. I, I have a feeling from my own reporting and from what I read of your great columns and, and now the Tao of Deception, that um, the CIA was slow to... Uh, understand what Chinese intelligence was doing, and it didn't have a lot of assets to throw at the problem. It didn't have a lot of Mandarin-speaking case officers to, to attack the problem. Is, do you, do you, is that your opinion as well? So let me tell you, uh, Jeff, what I uh, know about this. And then, as I say, the novel is, is embroidered. Nobody should imagine that the novel is fact. It, it, it isn't. But here, here's what I understand happened. Starting in about 2010, the CIA began losing assets. People didn't show up for meetings. Uh, people were known to have been arrested. In one um, traumatic case, somebody was, was shot in a way that the U.S. would know that he had been killed. Um, and, and that continued over the next uh, couple of years. It slowed down, kind of ended in 2012. So the agency first thought, uh, of course, that you couldn't lose this many uh, key assets. And the numbers that got hit over this two-year period, many estimates have been more than two dozen mm. were either arrested or killed and or killed. So the first thought obviously was, we have a mole. That's the only way they could know all these d details. So, And the mole must be somebody who is so well-placed that he, he knows all these different compartmented operations. So it was a, a small list of, of the most senior uh, China specialists in the agency. 
they weren't uh, informed that they were under suspicion, but they began to realize it uh, in this 2011-12 and on period as, as a very small task force working with the FBI began doing what, what they do in these situations with incredible care, trying to look and see and test. And the hypothesis that they had a mole ended up being in part true. Uh, and I'm just going to cover what's what's been written journalistically. I don't want to give away my my novel. So uh, there w- there was a Chinese American uh, senior operations officer. He, he had not done heavy duty operations. He was declared when he was in, in Beijing. So the work that he did was limited in scope. But uh, he didn't get along well with his station chief. He was seen as kind of a, a bad apple. Uh, he ended up getting. Uh, let go after he came back from Beijing, uh, and finally through the FBI was uh, trailed, and then they, they let him go after the first uh, uh, rumbling of his his electronics, uh, and then and then caught him uh, roughly two years later. His name was Jerry Lee, and, and he is now in prison. He was convicted uh, of uh, I don't know if it's espionage, but something something mm-hmm. close. But the problem was that Jerry Lee by himself simply couldn't explain the volume of cases. The, 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 the breadth of this disaster could not simply be this one figure. So the, the agency had to think about a, a deeper problem. And it's been written, mm-hmm. and my novel explores in some detail, uh, the evident conclusion that this was in part a failure in tradecraft, that people used protocols, um, the, the signatures of operations, uh, perhaps COFCOM devices and frequencies. Covert communication Covert devices. communications, sorry, as if I know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, uh, in, in, in repeated ways that made it possible for the Chinese through meticulous analysis to see if something was used once, then let's see if it was used another time. And also, as you arrest one person through interrogation, you begin to learn more details about tradecraft and, uh, and then you have more evidence to look on. But, but it was a story really of uh, counterintelligence in the old fashioned, I want to say James Angleton style in the U.S. He was the famous counterintelligence official at the CIA. Yes, that, that, that led the Chinese to have, have the success. What I tried to do in the novel was to make that story vivid and real and embroider it uh, and, and fill in details, you know, come up with a Chinese Carla, a woman. Uh, I had been told that there was a brilliant woman operations officer in the Ministry of State Security. Mm-hmm. So I invented a character who I, I'd love to come back to. Her name is Ma Wei. And she's, to me, a pretty interesting character. They call her the American girl because she studied at the University of Wisconsin. And yes, she did eat cheese curds. Huh. Yeah, I thought she was a fascinating character. And I was going to ask you about whether that was a total fictional creation because, uh, you know, uh, I have a contributing writer who has co-authored a book on Chinese espionage. And I asked him yesterday if he knew of any women in the top ranks of Chinese intelligence. He said he didn't. So you're telling me that this person or some, someone like this woman uh, has uh, or had a senior position in Chinese intelligence. Yes, there, there, was, there was a very sophisticated um, 
senior operations officer who did some real damage to the CIA. Well, that's new, and uh, it gives me it sort of tips me to to look into that some more and see if I can dig that out and who she is. But I, I'm sure you'll be three steps ahead of me for that. Let's talk about Chinese espionage in general here. One of the things I found really fascinating was uh, in your uh, Tao of Deception series was that uh, this woman, Mahwei, who uh, uh, rose to the top senior ranks of MSS, changed Chinese intelligence from its uh, sort of uh, its technique of vacuuming up everything in America, scientific journals, non-classified stuff. In fact, I have an ex-FBI friend who was a resident FBI agent in Madison during this period that you write about. And he said, uh, they they learned that the fax machines, remember fax machines, the fax machines were running 24-7 in the University of Wisconsin at Madison Library, and he tracked it down. It was Chinese students who were just sending up all this, everything they could learn. Now, um, uh, about some 25 years ago, I interviewed Paul Moore, who was the top China expert at the FBI, and he described Chinese espionage at that time as non-espionage espionage. In other words, that they just soaked up everything they could get, so any, any, lots of non-classified information, shipped it back to uh, Beijing, where it was sifted through and intelligence gleaned from that. But in your series, this woman, Mahwei, uh, she uh, reorients MSS into the CIA model of uh, Chinese SP, uh, CIA model of espionage, which is not to try to recruit everybody you can and just uh, gather information, but to do targeted recruiting, to to look for, to spot um, Americans who are in a position to have access to highly classified information. Is that true? I believe that is true. So you're certainly your description of the, of the traditional uh, mode of operation of the Ministry of State Security, um, this sort of vacuuming approach, uh, you know, collect a thousand grains of sand, mm-hmm. sift them, uh, f- find the, the, the nuggets of intelligence. That is the way that they operated. And there was a defector from the Ministry of State Security in life who defected to the CIA in November 1985, who opens my little novel uh, named Yu Kyungsheng. Right. Yu Kyungsheng had, had been a, a real prince of the revolution. His uh, f- father had been one of Mao's compatriots. He was a, a, a dyna- brilliant, dynamic uh, Shanghai physicist, uh, had been in the caves in Henan, the whole amazing uh revolutionary story. And you, his son, gradually grew more and more disgusted with the way in which the revolution had been perverted. He traveled with the American writer Edgar Snow in the early 1970s to see all the old comrades. And he found to his amazement that they were all bad-mouthing pretty much everything that had been part of the uh, Mao legacy, which was part of his souring on, on, on China. But the system that he described to the CIA when he defected in November 1985 and revealed the existence of then China's most senior mole, uh, a man named Larry Wu Tai Chin, who'd been a translator, but who had access because there were so few Mandarin speakers and writers to the most sensitive information for decades. He revealed that that person, but he also revealed what Chinese tradecraft was. And so the CIA kind of assumed they were dealing with this 
brute force, um, you know, recruiting heavily in the Chinese American overseas Chinese community. Figure that's their mo. That's that's what we have to worry about. And then China begins to accelerate in every way. I mean, I, I visited China often in the late eighties, nineties, two thousands, and you know, the, the takeoff of that country. Um, was mirrored in its intelligence service. So Mao Wei is, is, while a fictional character, I think illustrative of something real. The MSS got more serious about its tradecraft. Yes, they still focused on overseas Chinese. That was their principal recruiting pool, but not exclusively. They began going after Americans. There are cases that people can read about of Americans who were recruited. They had traditionally appealed to people's Chinese loyalty. It had been about serving the motherland. They became much more mercenary. They'd look for people who had money needs, just the way a CIA does. Who needs money? Who needs help? Who's got love problems? Who's got medical problems? And they'd try to answer answer those queries. And they just became, in every way, a more aggressive service. I note in the book one index, which is just stunning, which is in in 2020, an FBI official said the FBI was opening a new Chinese counterintelligence case twice a day. I mean, that's mind boggling that they were at that, that level of intensity. So, so that was what was new, Jeff. We have to take a quick break. We'll be back in a sec. Okay, we're back with David Ignatius. You get the sense that uh, from what FBI Director Chris Ray has said, is that the, the, the U.S. is overwhelmed by Chinese espionage. And proof of the pudding is that you look at Chinese aircraft, yeah. you know, and they all look like knockoffs. You know, it's the, it's the version of the down in Canal Street doing knockoff Prada shoes and handbags and so on. The Chinese have been able to steal our uh, war plane secrets uh, and transport plane secrets and and duplicate them in China. Um, do you get a, did you in your research for this uh, for the Dow of Deception? Did you get a sense that uh, that we are overwhelmed by Chinese espionage? So the the intensity of the Chinese threat is uh, I don't want to say overwhelming because the FBI still does manage to catch a lot of of Chinese. Uh, uh, operations. We've had some but, successes, yeah, in the last few years. But but the intensity is is extraordinary, um, and especially in the cyber realm. I mean, companies that are not buttoned down hard against the Chinese basically are going to lose everything they have. And I think American defense contractors and related companies, technology companies, have learned this over the last five or ten years. They finally have understood the, the seriousness of the Chinese threat. They are much more careful. So the easy pickings, the low-hanging fruit that was there for China, I mean, for goodness sakes, the Chinese just grabbed the most sensitive personnel records. I mean, how it can be that in our government, nobody ever bothered to look for the one personnel record where everybody walks <laughs> in the door at CIA who might be end up being a non-official cover officer, you know, under deep, you know, but that, that person's uh, vitals are all in the files that the Chinese were smart enough to steal. It's, so, um, I think people did wake up to the wake up to the threat. I think Chinese operations are more targeted now. I, here's a thought, Jeff. I'd love to know about Chinese tasking right now about Russia. I mean, mm -hmm. if anybody's in a position to actually know what the hell's going on in Russia, it's China. Are, is that a major collection target? 
uh, the, what do the Russians do when they fight, when they catch a Chinese agent trying to penetrate the GRU? Uh, but anyway, I just throw that out because this is the week when we're all wondering who knows what about Russia. Mm-hmm. Now the hero of, uh, well, I want just want to circle back to that for a second. You know, the idea of the Chinese spying on the Russians probably kind of new to a lot of people who don't follow this stuff. You know, they're both communists, so to speak. You know, why would they be spying on each other? Uh, but the Chinese are so good at this. And, of course, there are Chinese elements in, in Russia. You know, Chinese communities are Chinese heritage uh, communities in Russia. So, uh, and, and they have been at uh, loggerheads for years over various issues. They almost went to war back in 1969, I think it was. Yep. So, um, the Chinese would have been looking at the near enemy, uh, Russia, for a long time, not just the United States. Now, um, your hero, Tom Crane, is a Mandarin speaking CIA officer who uh, was the son of missionaries, I think you said. Uh, Like many of uh, our Chinese experts at the State Department in the 1950s and so on, they were the sons of missionaries in China. Um, And you present him as kind of a unique character. Do you have a sense that CIA and the FBI have bulked up on language training and uh, or recruiting officers who are fluent in Mandarin? I think they're doing better at it. They know it's a priority. Um, Chinese is such a hard language that fluency is, you have to put it in quotation marks, mm-hmm. you know, even a level four uh, Chinese speaker uh, may not be able to, to do all, all of his or her recruitments in Chinese. Um, Chinese Americans, people who like missionaries or, or their kids grew up um, uh, really speaking the language have been invaluable. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've always thought for, for years that one reason that Mormons were so prominent in CI was that because they went on their missionary years abroad, they really had to learn the language in a way that a, a language student normally does. They had to be able to deliver their whole pitch in, in seamless uh, language. And that was true of people who were sent, obviously, to, to China once upon a time to the extent that it's fair to say that it's a lot easier for the Chinese to learn English than it is for Americans who are not good at languages anyway for cultural, historical reasons. Uh, it's a lot harder for Americans to learn Chinese. I spent a year studying Vietnamese, 47 weeks, six hours a day. I got to level three. And the irony here is that every time I opened my mouth in Vietnam, I revealed myself as an intelligence officer. So it seems to me that as soon as the Chinese spot a Chinese speaking, a Mandarin speaking or Cantonese speaking officer in a U.S. consulate or uh, embassy, uh, that this person is revealing themselves as an intelligence officer. So that's a big challenge. I, th- I think you're right. I think we must be mighty easy to spot. That puts a premium on our tradecraft. And it's one reason this roll up of, of American assets in China was so was so stunning because it's so hard to operate there, that that is the ultimate hard target uh, today. Um, the, the techniques that we thought we had evolved to be able to operate clandestinely uh, and you know handle service agents who were risking their lives on our behalf, uh, that was shown to be wildly inadequate and to have exposed people to terrible danger. One of the things that... Um, I note in the book, and I believe it was true, was in this period of of 2010 to 2012, as the networks were 
collapsing. There was a desperate attempt to to exfiltrate, to help uh, escape uh, those assets who had not yet been caught. And I'm told that I don't know that in any case it was successful. I know that in, in a number of cases it was not successful. That must have been excruciating for the people who were involved. For sure. Um, I've been told that uh, pervasive corruption has resulted in a windfall for Western intelligence. Uh, is that BS, do you think, that the uh, CIA and FBI sources are telling us that, uh, uh, you know, that we, we've harvested high-level Chinese officials because they're afraid of being jailed for corruption or, uh, or they're disgusted by corruption, they've fallen into the arms of the CIA, so to speak? Uh, do you think that's true? I think that the corruption that was rampant in China um, was an extremely valuable operational tool for the for the CIA. In a previous novel called The Quantum Spy, one of the plot engines is in fact the uh, notebook that a Chinese um, scientist involved in their quantum computing research brings with him on a trip to Singapore, which the CIA in a very cleverly uh, organized operation takes from him and uses essentially to blackmail him with the what's called the Discipline Inspection Commission. When she took power in 2012, he decided we can either go the way of Russia and let corruption run wild and basically wreck uh, any hopes of disciplined uh, management through the Communist Party, or we can crack down. So she cracked down. I mean, people don't realize he, he purged a whole generation of the party, and he did it, did it through this Discipline Inspection Commission. Mm -hmm. So for the agency, knowing who was corrupt, and that meant pretty much everybody, uh, was an, a very useful tool. And I think it's part of how they reconstructed their networks after the takedown in 2012. We, there were two in, in that period, 2012 onward, two MSS deputy vice ministers were in fact fired and under circumstances that suggested that they were uh, caught in, in scandals. Um, but so the, the, there's, the, that was a key opening. Uh, and I find it fascinating that she understood just how dangerous corruption was. I'm sure corruption continues. She himself had said at his own bag, bag man, bag lady, um, they all did. I mean, just everybody was, was shipping money out, buying real estate in Vancouver. There wasn't anybody who didn't have some money out, some family members with, with passports, kids at Harvard, kids. I mean, you know, I, I think Xi Jinping's own daughter was at Harvard if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. But but that was all organized. The, the crackdown was organized by a man named Wang Kishan, who figured as a character in this earlier novel, Quantum Spy, who's really the closest person to Xi Jinping, deserves a biography all of his own. Because one of the things he did, amazingly enough, Jeff, was to organize systematic leaks of information about corrupt officials to the news media, there were Chinese investigative journal, journals, Sai Jing. I used to work with the editor of Sai Jing. She knew everything. She had all these people in the party who were blabbing to her because they wanted to, to nail so-and-so. So, um, you know, that is that is real and, and is a, a little part of, of the book. What do we know about the guy who runs Chinese intelligence? 
the current head of, of the Ministry of State Security, I know almost nothing about it, Mike, because I've been looking at a, at a different period in my invented characters. The, the Ministry of State Security historically was very much subordinate to the PLA. It was the PLA that did the lion's share of the work that did- Military intelligence. PLA, military intelligence, the second branch, third branch, did primarily cyber operations, but other technical operations. And the Chinese were just so good at them. And they kind of went, meh. You know, I mean, back in the old days, uh, the truth is the MSS wasn't producing very much. The, the harvest of secrets for the Chinese that gave them, let them build airplanes and jet engine turbines and all that, that was being stolen. They were just literally taking the plans out of people's uh, computer systems. Uh, it, it wasn't the MSS. So uh, it's been a tough position to be in. I'm, I'm told that she realized that he needed to strengthen the ministry rather than let it die. It was on the verge of collapsing and being absorbed into the, into the PLA, uh, the Chinese mm -hmm. army. And so you could argue she saved it. He has somebody I, I do know that the, the person who runs it is seen as very much a she loyalist. Yeah, and he came up as a cop. He uh, he was a counterintelligence guy, and 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 the general word is that he's focused on a lot of domestic counterintelligence, uh, which means you know tra tra tracing foreign spies uh, and tracking them down and uh, prosecuting them or eliminating them. Uh, just a sidebar here on uh, 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 tradecraft. I was fascinated in your in Dow of Deception by the use of U.S. satellites to aid case officers in secret meetings with their sources. How much of that is true? So uh, the truth, of course, is I don't know. I'm a, I'm a journalist. I'm a novelist. Um, you know, I've heard it uh, rumored and whispered that um, overhead reconnaissance can be extremely uh, useful in detecting surveillance and in, 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 in sighting and then uh, surveilling, casing drop sites. But I don't know that for a fact. I don't want to pretend that um, I, I'm out here deeper into the waters of, of our satellite tradecraft than I am. Let's just say I'm, just ma I'm making it up. But I, I think if they're not doing that, they're idiots because that's an enormous opportunity for us. Sure. Well, this has been fascinating, David. Thank you so much for joining us in Spy Talk. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you back again if you've got the time um, to talk more about Chinese intelligence. This problem's not going to go away. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Bye-bye. Thanks. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our complete podcast archive at the MSW Network or on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, please check out the Spy Talk news site on Substack, where our deeply experienced contributing writers offer a steady diet of scoops and original analysis. Just Google Spy Talk and you'll find your way there. This edition of the Spy Talk podcast, like all the others, was smoothly produced by Kanai at MSW Media with expert editing from Molly Hockey. Oh, and by the way, that music you've been hearing... Aficionados of all things China will recognize it as the soundtrack from The Last Emperor, the 1987 Bernardo Bertolucci epic that tracks China's evolution from the collapse of its thousand-year dynasty in the early 20th century through the triumph of the communist uprising in 1949 and the 1960s Cultural Revolution. That's it. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Stein. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.